0: Romans, Romans chapter 1 through 3. Chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. Paul is establishing the universal guilt of humanity or as we said, the need for justification by faith. We saw that he took his text in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, that the gospel reveals a righteousness from God revealed from faith and nothing but faith. Just as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. So he's revealing a gospel that provides righteousness from God through faith. First step in order, then, is to establish the need for that justification, and that is chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul gives this universal indictment on all of humanity. The bottom line in all of this is to say that all of us, all of us, have done, uh, all of us know better than we have done. And that is true of the man who is in the most remote part of the world where he's heard no specific, special revelation from God, but he recognizes in his heart, and it is evident in the created order himself that he can recognize that God has moral and righteous requirements on him, and yet, although he knows that, he has violated it. The same has come for those who recognize it further in their conscience in chapter 2, verses 1 and following, And chapter 2, verse 17 and following, specifically those who have had special revelation from God, all of us, whatever degree of revelation we've had, we know better than what we've done. We've violated our conscience at all kinds of points. And so he's established the universal guilt, the universal rebellion of all humanity. In order to give the good news, he had to give the bad news first. And he establishes the need for justification. And we wrapped all of this up last hour by saying that Paul's specific point is all are guilty. All have sinned. All have sinned. But his larger point is unless God can find a way to give us righteousness freely, apart from any requirements on our side, we're lost. So he's established the need for justification. Now, today, or this hour, we'll look at the method of justification this is Romans chapters 3 verse 21 321 through the end of chapter 5 i won't take time to read all of that but i do want to take time to read some let's begin with chapter 3 verse 21 but now the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that there's, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also. Since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's start with a question to get it into the courtroom atmosphere of Romans chapter 3 uh, verse 21 through chapter 5. Let's imagine that your mother was mugged or let's say your daughter was mugged. And let's say she's in the hospital. We've brought pictures in of Officers brought pictures in. She's identified the assailant. Not only can she identify him, but we have other eyewitnesses who have identified him. And in fact, there happen to be security cameras outside the place where it happened. The security cameras have picked it up. We've got this guy. We know who it is. He goes to court. Would you be right to want him to receive... Penalty that's coming to him. Would you be right in wanting that? It's not a trick question. Of course you would. Of course you. Would. There's a sense of justice. We expect judgment to come. So it goes before the court. The evidence is presented. It's all heard. We've got him cold. And the judge says not guilty. How do you feel about that? something in you that's just outraged, even if it's not your mother. There's something about that that is entirely wrong. So the question is this. Is that what you want God to do for you? This that we deplore in human judges, is that what you expect God to do for you? To look at you, a guilty sinner, and say, not guilty. This is the problem, the problem of justification. In its first instance, justification is not a problem that we face. In its first instance, justification is a problem that God faces. How can a just God justify sinners justly? That's a lot to say. How can a just God justify sinners justly? That's the question Paul takes up in this whole section. Let's start with what is justification? Well, you've already guessed it if you didn't know it already, and that is, given this courtroom atmosphere that I've, I've painted for you, justification is the declaration of a judge, a pronouncement of righteousness. It is the judge looking at the accused and saying, not guilty. The, the, the accused is being vindicated. So, the question then is how is a just God, a just judge, going to justify sinners justly. Now, what's interesting and what is wonderful about the gospel is that this is a question that the gospel does not sidestep at all. This is a question that the scriptures do not try to evade, but it's a question that the gospel faces head on. And it takes it very seriously. And what we will see, as we have already seen in chapters 1 through 3, the Bible does not take the route of saying, well, God is going to be kind and merciful and let bygones be bygones and let's just forget the things that have been done wrong and let's just save save everybody. Because God is nice. That's not the approach the Gospel takes at all. But it takes very seriously this matter of sin, rebellion against God, an offense to divine righteousness and the, therefore the demand of punishment. Sinners must be punished for their sin. God's righteousness demands it. And so in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has established the guilt of humanity and therefore the need of justification. And now in chapters chapter 3, verse 21, through cha- the end of chapter 5, he's going to explain for us the remedy to that, the divine remedy for that in the Gospel. And this is the means or the method, the divine method of justification. So let's return to the question, how can God justify you? It's a given now, after three chapters of this that Paul has given us, it's a given that we are guilty. We've all rebelled against whatever degree of revelation we have received. And the guilt is established. So how can God justify you? Well, the most obvious answer is, I'm going to have to do better, aren't I? I'm going to have to take seriously God's law. And I'm going to have to turn over a new leaf, and I'm going to have to do good. And so, from here on, I take God's law very seriously, and I obey it. Well, I try to obey it. I try my best sometimes, and I actually succeed sometimes. But I obey God's law. How's that going going to help me? Of course, the problem with that is, one, not only am I continually violating at certain points, even if I could turn over that new leaf and do perfectly from here on, which is really a dream, let's say I could do perfectly from here the fact is still established, I'm guilty. So what can the law do? That raises the question, what was God's purpose in giving the law then? Did God give the law to save? Can it do that? What does the law require? Does the law come to us and say, well, if you uh, if you try, or if you try your best, how would you do it? God came to us and said, if you do your best, I'll take it. How, how would that work for you? Anybody here want to say you've done your best? Or does the law say, if you... Keep the law 99% of the time. God will have you. It's just not the way law works, is it? You violate the law at any point, you're guilty of violating the law. You've still rebelled against God and violated his commands. Still guilty. So then, why the law? Well, Paul picked that up just briefly in chapter 3, at the verses 19 and 20. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is, the law has nothing to offer lawbreakers. All that the law can give lawbreakers is condemnation. And so why was the law given? Answer? establish sin, to shut mouths. I'm sure you've run into this in witnessing before. You try to witness, give the gospel to someone, and inevitably, you don't do this very long at all, but inevitably, someone is going to say, well, I think if I keep the Ten Commandments, God will have me. It happened every semester when I was teaching at Penn State. Somebody, somebody would raise his hand, well, I think if you keep the Ten Commandments, God will accept us. And what the appropriate response at that point, I think, the best response, is simply say, okay, how's that working for you? And so every semester I would get the chalk and I'd get on the chalkboard and say, okay, let's list them one to ten, and I'd go through every one of them. I'd say, how are you doing? You tell me. And if he tells me he's never had made, made an idol or had other gods, I'll give it to him. I'm not going to argue at that point because I know where this is going anyway. And we get through it all, and he's given himself like a 40 percent or 50 percent grade on the thing okay now you've just told me that god will have you if you keep the ten commandments how's that working for you law stops the mouths i've got nothing to say because all the law can do is establish my sinfulness and so he says at the end of verse 20 through the law comes the knowledge of sin so we've had general revelation and we all recognize intuitively that God is, that we're dependent upon God, that we are obligated and accountable to God. We know righteous requirements of God. Some of us have received more revelation than that. But wherever we are in this spe- spectrum of things, every one of us knows better than what we've done. We've sinned. And after all of that, God gives His law. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Well, what's the point of that? Well, it's established now, in black and white, objectively, what we already knew. That's the purpose of the law. It wasn't given to save because it can't. It has nothing to offer lawbreakers. And so, we come to the conclusion that we've seen already, that if righteousness is something that we must give God, now follow this, if righteousness is something that we must give God, we're lost. Because we can't deliver. But now, what if, what if God could give us righteousness? Would that work? But now that raises that other question we started with. How can God do that justly? How can the judge give us a righteousness that is not ours, when in fact we are unrighteous. That's the problem of justification. But righteousness as a gift from God is exactly the theme of chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. Righteousness as a gift from God. Notice it again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A righteousness from God. Notice again verse 24, justified freely as a gift by His grace. And notice the expression, verse 21. This has often just fascinated me, how a first century Israelite would have heard this. But now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now that's heresy if you've ever heard it, right? God has revealed his law to show us what righteousness is. And you're telling me now that I can have righteousness apart from that law? Heretic. Paul says it's exactly the gospel. It's exactly the gospel. And in fact, not only is this righteousness attainable apart from that Mosaic covenant, this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is to say, the Old Covenant establishes sin. And although it cannot provide the righteousness that it demands, the Old Covenant itself points away from itself to a means of attaining righteousness apart from it. Okay? A righteousness that comes freely then by grace as a gift. But again, the question, how in the world can that happen? And in verses 24, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, in here we have one of the densest passages in the whole Bible, one of the most tightly reasoned arguments that we find anywhere in the Bible, and it's worth our time to unpack it carefully. And there are a couple of big words that we have to learn. Verse 24. They're justified by His grace, justified, that is, declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, here's the means of it. How are we justified freely? Answer, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or we could, to be very graphic in the translation, through the ransoming that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a, a word that speaks of purchasing, but not just purchasing, but purchasing by means of a ransom. It speaks of deliverance, but not just a generic kind of deliverance, but a deliverance by means of a ransom. So in the Old Testament, you've through poverty and various mistakes you've made economically and whatnot, you've found yourself in slavery. Your family, if they like you, can buy you back. And that price that is paid to get you out of slavery is the ransom price. The one who does it is the Redeemer. He buys you back. In the New Testament world as well, in military situations, prisoners of war would be taken. Once in a while they'd find that they've got an important guy or a guy with a wealthy family or something like that. And back at home, the family finds out about it. They offer a price that's negotiated and the price is paid for his release that's a ransom that is paid for his release slavery in this time as well a slave could buy his way out or someone could buy him out of slavery there's a long ritual that went through it they'd go to the pagan temple and offer an offering to the gods and they'd pay a price and that was the ransom that was given to buy the freedom of the slave And Paul here, in this metaphor that's taken up often in the New Testament, is picturing us as in this captivity of Satan, in captivity of sin, and Christ, by his death, has paid the ransom that has purchased the price, delivering us into freedom in Christ. So let's back up. We are justified, declared righteous, freely, and this is an interesting pun, freely through the purchase. Freely through the redemption. We'll get back to that in a minute. That is in Christ Jesus. And then another word. Whom God put forward as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Or if you have the New International Version, through the sacrifice of atonement. I think I've told you before that I'm always amused at the NIV at this point. They don't like the word propitiation because they're afraid no one will understand it. And so they put sacrifice of atonement, which no one understands either. Well, I think it is best to keep the word as we have it, propitiation, and just take the time to get our dictionary if we need to. Propitiation speaks of God's justice demanding satisfaction and actually then receiving satisfaction because the demands of justice have been met. Or we might speak of propitiation simply as averting God's wrath. Turning aside God's wrath. But we have to keep in mind it turns aside God's wrath not just by a divine fiat. God say, well, I won't be angry anymore. It's a turning aside of God's wrath by means of a satisfaction of justice. So that the wrath is satisfied and turned away. That brings us to another concept throughout this this passage, and that is this concept of substitution. Penal substitution. The penalty is paid substitutionally. Presupposed in all of this. So Christ comes, and in our place, bears the curse, the wrath that we endured by God. By that, we are purchased out of, of the slavery of sin precisely because God's wrath, His justice is satisfied. And God's Wrath against us is turned aside only because it has fallen upon our substitute, the Lord Jesus. Now with all of that, let's go back and read verse 24 again, 25. Verse 23, All of sin fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by His grace as a gift. Well, how in the world can you do that? Answer through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All of this, then, is the ground of this free justification. Free justification. God declaring sinners to be righteous comes to us because we have a substitute taking the curse in our place, satisfying divine wrath, thereby delivering us from our sin And God now, justly, may justify sinners because in their place they have one who has stood and borne the penalty himself. And so that's how Paul argues then in verses 25 and 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Remember how he started out in verse... 17 of chapter 1. The gospel declares the righteousness of God. How so? Follow. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance he passed over the former sins. What does that mean? In his his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. How about all those in in the Old Testament? Before Jesus died, how are they saved? The answer Paul gives here, they're saved on credit. In anticipation of this atoning work that was made in Christ. But now his point is reached in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is to say, this gospel, this good news that we proclaim, does not say, never mind, sins don't matter, God will have you anyway. This gospel says your sin is a very serious thing and demands condemnation. The good news is we have a substitute who has taken our place The perfect Son of God made man Himself standing in our place, bearing our curse, taking our penalty, bearing all the wrath of God in our place so that God's righteous demands against us are completely satisfied. His wrath against us is averted because it's perfectly poured out on our substitute, in our place. And by that we are set free and God is able now on a ground of a full satisfaction of justice can say, Fred Zastel, not guilty. Isn't that amazing? He does not sidestep his justice. God will not save anyone anyone by sidestepping his justice. This demand of justice must be met. And so we have what we like to call around here the great exchange. We go to Christ with all of our sin, not denying it, confessing it. We go to Christ with all of our sin, confessing it, acknowledging it's all ours, and give it to Him. And He takes it and in exchange He gives us His righteousness. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not good advice. The gospel doesn't come and say you need to do better and try this. The gospel is good news. It says there's been a salvation accomplished by a great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a fascinating end to the argument in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? You've been saved apart from keeping the law. God has justified you and you have not kept the law. That's overthrowing the law. The law demands righteousness, right? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That is to say, all of these other methods would be methods of justification. They overthrow the law. Not this one. If you go to God saying, I think you'll have me because I've kept the Ten Commandments fairly well. Are you upholding the law? You're you're overthrowing the law. If you go to God saying, well, I've done my best. Are you upholding the law? No. The law demands more than your best. It demands perfection. And any other means of approaching God by any kind of self-help overthrows the law entirely. The gospel comes and says we've upheld the law. The law demands perfection. We have it in our substitute. The law demands that the sinner be punished. We have that in our substitute. We've upheld the law in every respect. God's justice is maintained. And now, through Jesus, God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Now, this is something we'll see in chapter 5 that weighs massively in terms of satisfying our conscience. There's nothing our conscience can object to in this. The demands of justice are satisfied. And neither our conscience nor God Himself can find any objection, any fault in this method of justification. We have someone taking our place and doing for us all that God requires of us. And how do we have Him? Well, of course, this is the emphasis throughout this passage on faith. Chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verses 25-28, you'll find it several times over. God has put him forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Um, verse 31, do we overthrow this law by this faith? Throughout here, verse 28, the same, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Well, then what is faith? Well, whatever else faith is, it's not a work, right? Because he's already been claiming all throughout this, arguing that nothing we can do to contribute to this equation. It is done for us freely by Christ. Faith, then, is a going to God, recognizing and acknowledging that we have nothing to offer, but receiving receiving freely what Christ alone has done. Faith is an acknowledgement that we can't do it, and it is an acknowledgement that Christ has done it all, and we're simply resting in Him. There's an old saying, something like, no one nowhere ever got something for nothing unless someone somewhere paid something for nothing? Alright, that's a lot. No one know ever got something for nothing unless someone somewhere paid something for nothing. That is, for example, if you take me to lunch, which is a wonderful idea, <laughs> by the way, and you you pay for lunch, I got something for nothing. But it's only because someone else paid something for nothing. I remember one time years ago, the kids were young. We walked into Boskov's department store, and there's a bin full of boxes of Cracker Jack. I love Cracker Jack. I think I took two. I think Jimmy took three. Now, it's really funny because that's not really advertising as such. Somebody, I got something for nothing, but it's because someone, I said, presume at this point, it was Mr. Boskov paid something for nothing. And that's salvation exactly. And that's why in verse 24 Paul can say we are justified freely as a gift through the purchase, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We got something for nothing because Christ paid something for nothing for us. It is free to us, but very, very costly. All right, so the question then is simply, in what are you trusting? Are you good enough? Now, this is very important. I know that the Reformed Baptist Church, we all know, salvation is by grace through faith and works don't contribute to it. But I suspect, and I'm increasingly convinced of this, I suspect that many of us tend to think, think daily, as though we don't know the gospel. And we tend to think in terms of what I must contribute to earn God's favor. And what's important here is that we really grasp what Paul is saying here. The gospel is a promise of free pardon to rebel sinners. It's not an ungrounded pardon. It is a pardon that is grounded in a full satisfaction of justice. And that is to say, my standing before God has nothing whatever to do with me. It has to do only with what someone else has done for me. And so I don't go through every day, oh, I missed my devotions today. God is angry with me. God is very pleased with me because I have standing in my place someone who said and was able truthfully to say, I always do the things that please my Father. Or I suspect something will come up and you'll go to pray and it's very urgent. And just as you go to pray, "Ah, a conscience comes. I haven't witnessed anybody in three weeks. I didn't have my devotions this morning. God won't hear me. You think like that? You think like a legalist sometime? We ought to be thinking, I have a perfect right to come before God because I'm fully accepted in His Son. And my acceptance before Him has nothing to do with me. Now, my sins are still very important and their are consequences and I must take it seriously. We'll deal with that when we get to chapter 6. But my standing before God and my acceptance before God and my reception of God's favor and my standing in His favor has nothing to do with my performance. It has to do with Christ. Aren't you glad of that? Oh, I fear that too many of us Christians... We believe the gospel on the way in and we think too often daily like a legalist. I shudder at sometimes. I've heard, I've heard Christians, Christians, I'm convinced they're believers, but say things like... I, I remember one lady, her, her mother was, was suffering and in her final days, she was a believer, but in her final days, she was slipping and didn't have all of her capacity... All of the use of her faculties, and she began to say some things that were really pretty embarrassing and whatnot. And through all of that discussion, this gal says, I just hope when she goes to heaven, God will remember the good things she's done. When I go, when I go to stand before God, I don't remember anything about me. I want him to remember that I, I have a substitute who did exactly and always and only everything that I need. Gospel-centered, Christ-centered thinking. The ground of my acceptance is Jesus and Jesus only. I think very often we think I've had a good day. I got up this morning on time. I had my devotions. I could pray, read my Bible, witness to somebody at work today. And I go to bed feeling pretty good about myself because I've performed well. Whole ground of my acceptance has nothing to do with me. It has to do with what Christ has done in my place. You think like a Christian? You've got to train your mind, don't you? When I go to pray, when my conscience accuses, when I've sinned even, I need to think like a Christian. I have someone who has answered for all of that. You know how it is when you've sinned and you've done something you know is wrong. You've yelled at your wife or whatever, and you really feel guilty about it. So you've confessed it. Your wife, you confessed it before God, but you feel like feel like there's more you ought to do. And so you put yourself through this penance, this Reformed Baptist penance that we do, and for the next day or so you're feeling down on myself. I'm no good. And after a few days of that, you finally go, okay, I've worked through this. And I've satisfied my conscience. We got our own little purgatory we work through, right? You're not thinking like a Christian. We're not thinking like Christian. The whole glory of it all is that Christ has answered for all of it. In my place, I have someone who's given me a right standing with God freely as a gift. And I have it because of him. Let's take a little bit longer and move into chapter 4, where Paul here gives us proof of this doctrine. He's just expounded it now, and he offers several levels of proof in chapters 4 and 5. First, in chapter 4, he gives us proof that is offered from the case of Abraham. In the first verses here, he begins to argue a little more, as he has, but from the standpoint of Abraham. Let's read through it quickly. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here he quotes Genesis Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here he gives an illustration of David, just as David, Psalm 32, speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is the blessing then for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now the argument here goes something like this. First of all, sin in the Bible is often spoken of as a debt, a debt that's accumulated and counted against us or imputed to our account. The point, of course, is not... The point, of course, is that we owe God this debt that we have accumulated. We have violated His law. We failed to do what He has told us to do. We've done things He's told us not to do. We've accumulated this debt before God. So then, how can we pay this debt back to God? Well, the most obvious answer to it is we can work to pay it off. Good works, keep the law problem with that of course is number one we can't we can't pay it off we can't work enough to undo what's been done and there's another problem he mentions here in verse 4 if you work for your salvation and you earned it that would say that God now is a debtor to you and he owes you something and that ain't never going to happen God doesn't owe anybody anything. Never will anyone stand before God and obligate him for anything. God will never be in a position saying, Oh, well, I I, I owe it to you now because you've obligated." not going to happen. So then Abraham. Well, before we get to Abraham, notice the statement in verse 5. This is absolutely revolutionary. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies people who try hard. Isn't this an amazing statement? They trust him who justifies the ungodly. Now that's the whole problem we've been dealing with. How can a just God justify sinners justly? And here he comes right on and says, without blushing, God justifies ungodly people. How can he do that? Answer? That's the gospel. We've got a substitute who's taken our place. He's made all, met all the demands that God has given us. In our place, He's done for us what God has required. And the Gospel is God justifies not, not those people who try their best and do the best and perform the best. He justifies ungodly people. You want to stand right before God? The First thing you've got to do is acknowledge you don't deserve it. And that you have nothing to contribute. So for example, Abraham... When was Abraham justified? Answer, Genesis chapter 15. God appears to him. Remember this great scene where the animals are cut in two and, put and they make the covenant, Walking, God himself passing through the pieces. He makes a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believes God, and it's counted to him for righteousness. Justification, Genesis chapter 15. Next question. How was Abraham justified? Answer, by faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Next question, when was Abraham justified? Answer, Genesis 15. Next question, when was Abraham circumcised? Genesis 17. On most people's counting, Genesis 17 comes after Genesis 15. And that is to say, Abraham's circumcision, whatever else it signified, and however else important it was, it did not contribute to his justification, because his justification became first. That's Paul's argument, just a chronological one. And so whether it's baptism or any other contribution or would-be contribution to the same, it doesn't work. And Abraham stands as the proof. Nothing can be given to God to obligate him. Not even Abraham's circumcision, you remember, that came after. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That raises the question then that we've already answered, but it comes up again here in different terms, on what basis... On what basis can God be so gracious to Abraham? It's interesting that just as sin is spoken of in terms of a debt, so salvation is described in accounting terms as well. Now in my version here, it's translated counted. You might have it translated imputed or considered, something like that. It's an accounting term, and I want you to see how Paul works that through this passage. Verse 3. Abraham this is quoting Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to, to the one who works, his wages are not counted or imputed as a gift. Verse 5. Not, and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is imputed or counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Verse 8, blesses the man against whom the Lord will not impute his sins. Verse 9, we say that faith was imputed to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, how then was it imputed? Verse 11, you've got the same. You've got it again down in verse 22, 23, 24. All right, pretty much a theme here, okay? Now, what is imputation? What's he talking about here? Again, it's an accounting term. I deposit a check in my uh, bank account and it's imputed to my account. Here it's spoken of in moral terms. I commit sin, it's imputed to my account. Christ comes and stands in my place. My sin is imputed to him His righteousness is imputed to me. That's justification. On what ground can God declare a sinner to be just? On the ground that a righteousness has been given him by his substitute, Christ. this, This bookkeeping terminology is given. The great thing about our salvation, then, is that our sin, as per Psalm 32, is not imputed to us, but instead... Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. I'm given his righteousness. And this again is chapter 3 and verse 26 that we saw that God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. And that brings us again to the importance of faith. God does not owe anyone anything except condemnation for their sin. If you are working to achieve favor before God... The Gospel says, give it up. It can't be done. God will never be obliged before anybody. What God requires is that you turn from all of your self-help as well as from your other sins and rest in Jesus Christ alone who alone has met God's requirements and who alone has borne fully the penalty of sin. That's faith. Looking to Christ, resting on the promise of grace in him. That's Abraham. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's David, as we've seen here. That's the Apostle Paul in Romans cha- or Philippians chapter three. I had it all going for me. I was leader of the pack in Judaism. By virtue of my heritage, my family, by virtue of my religion, my own efforts in religion, I had it all. And all of it I had to count loss. That instead I may find Christ and be found in His righteousness instead. And so let's make it very plain. How do you know you're saved? Or let's take the old question. If you were to die today and stand before God in judgment and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What's your answer? I know that question's been worn out, but I love it. It. it What's the question, right? Where it belongs. Why should He let me into heaven? Nothing. There is no reason at all you should let me into heaven except Jesus Christ has come and He has taken my place. He has borne all of my sin. He's taken the penalty and paid it in full. And in exchange, I have His righteousness come to you in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And on that basis alone, I expect God will have me. There is no other ground. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. And on this ground alone, God will accept us. Paul is going to argue this in a couple more steps. and We'll see that this evening in Romans chapter 5. As we Observe the Lord's Supper as well. But we'll see that then. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, what a wonderful gospel this is. We are so thankful that we do not have to make believe. We don't have to pretend that somehow we've done well enough. Make believe that we've met this or that requirement. But we can go to you with full assurance that every requirement has been perfectly met by the Lord Jesus who took our place. We thank You for Him. I pray, Father, that You would help us, Your people, Your people who so easily forget the Gospel we've embraced. We pray that You will help us to be refreshed in this reminder of what we have in Christ. May we live this week with the joy that comes from it. We pray in His name.